I'm Anthony, and uh, I'm an intern here at Cross Life. And uh, just to tell you a little bit about myself, um, I graduated from MSU last year, and uh, I'm married to a wonderful woman named Jennifer Skinner, who is soon to have our first child. And uh, yeah, that's coming down to the wire right now. But yeah, I get the privilege of opening God's word with you tonight. And uh, I'm really excited. Um, it's really easy to preach in front of friends. So just know, you, just know I, I love you guys and I know that you'll be forgiving towards me. So, uh, <laughs> so um, yeah, why don't we go ahead and pray and uh, ask God to bless this time. Lord, we do want to come before you and uh, Lord, we pray for my nerves uh, Lord, that you would uh, just calm them, and Lord, help me to teach your word rightly, and uh, I just want to pray for anyone here that might be distracted by today's events or something that might be going on in their life. Lord, may you just uh, help them to pay attention to your word, and God, take heed to it. So Lord, help us to be attentive, help us to be focused in on you, and uh, yeah, God, use this time Speak through your word. Apply it however you will. Amen. Great. So I just wanted to start with a a quick quote from A.W. Tozer pertaining to our topic. He's answering the question, what is faith? What is faith? Remember that faith is not a noble quality found only in superior men. It is not a virtue attainable By a limited few, it is not an ability to persuade others that black is white or that something we desire will come to pass if we only wish it hard enough. Faith is simply bringing our minds into uh, into accord with the truth. It is adjusting our expectations to the promises of God in the complete assurance that God of the whole earth can, can not lie. A man looks at a mountain and affirms, that is a mountain. There's no particular virtue in that affirmation. It is simply accepting the fact that stands before him and bringing his belief into the accord with that fact. Wonderful words from our, concerning our topic, which is faith today. Uh, it's simply bringing our own knowledge into accord with what is true Our text that we're going to consider today is found in Mark 11, so why don't you guys go ahead and grab your Bibles and start turning there, and uh, I'll give us a little bit of context uh, to help set the stage for us. It's currently Wednesday of Passion Week, and the life and ministry of Christ is reaching an absolute climax. His earthly ministry is coming to a close, and Christ will soon be crucified on the cross at Calvary. And all he has to do at this point is finish up the work that the Father has laid out before him, which is namely, keep teaching these disciples, these men who would go on to establish the church. So why don't we go ahead and read Mark 11, starting in verse 20 through 25. As they passed by in the morning, they saw a fig tree withered away to its roots, and Peter, and Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you have cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, 
Have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have or believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Today's hard saying is really nothing new, is it? We could find all this material probably elsewhere in the Gospels. And Jesus is just reaffirming what he has already taught his men. Jesus is trying to teach a a lesson on what it means to have true faith. In these last few days, he wants to drive this point home to these men. This is going to be one of the last lessons that Christ ever gets to teach his men. And he wants to make sure that they know it. He wants to make sure that they have genuine faith that can move mountains. And so where we're at in, uh, in, uh, in the story of Jesus' life, uh, we're in Passion Week, like I said earlier. And he and his disciples are on their way back from, or back to Jerusalem. They're coming from Bethany, which Christ has made home base over Passion Week, and they're coming back to Jerusalem, and it's early, early morning. Bethany is the home of where Lazarus, Mary, and Martha uh, abide, and the reason why Christ and his men are staying there is simply because they're friends. Another reason why they're also, also why they're staying there is because uh, it wouldn't give an opportunity for the Jews to kill Jesus had he stayed in Jerusalem. So it keeps them at a safe distance. It's about two miles away from Jerusalem. Yeah, like I said, over the Mount of Olives. And so this is where we are. We're catching up with Christ in this early, early morning. And uh, yeah, they're on their way back to Jerusalem. So let's start, let's look back at our passage. Verse 20. And as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. So a quick question might be to ask is, what fig tree are they even talking about, talking about here? Well, I've got a quick tip for you when you're studying your Bible. Context. If you see something that confuses you, look at the context. Context is king and it'll help really interpret something that might often confuse you and it'll make it clear. So a quick look at context, and we see back in verse 12, Jesus actually curses a fig tree. So let's go back there and read this account as well. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree, he went to it to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. To cut to the chase, in God's story of redemption, he loves using the illustration of Israel as a plant or Israel as a tree. And Jesus is doing the exact same thing here by cursing this fig tree. He's trying to show us that Israel, even though it looks healthy, is in fact dead. It's really not producing fruit. So Jesus uses this fig tree as a divine object, listen, to represent what was going on in the spiritual state of Israel. Isaiah 5 records a similar instance, how God was looking for 
good fruit from Israel, but all he finds is wild grapes. God had put all this work into the vineyard, but he had received absolutely nothing. Isaiah 5, 4 through 5 says, What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done for it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its walls and it shall be trampled down. So the general principle we can gather from this is that God is looking for good fruit from his people. God is looking for good fruit from his people. Any person that is not producing good fruit will eventually be brought into judgment. John 15, 6 says that if anyone is not producing fruit, he is to be thrown away and wither, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and are burned. Hebrews 6, 8 says, but if land bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Looking at this in light of what's going on in Mark, Jesus curses this fig tree because it wasn't producing fruit. It could have been simply producing even the buds that signify that someday it would be producing fruit. But there's no such signs, no such inklings. And sadly, this, is, was, this was the current state of Israel in that day. They may have looked healthy. They may have looked like a big bushy green tree. But in fact, upon closer inspection, nothing. No fruit, no faith. No repentance. Continuing on with our story in verse 21. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Peter decides to speak up for the whole group. They had all seen the fig tree and their mouths had dropped. They were absolutely astonished at what Christ had done to this tree. And a couple of observations coming off of this. One, I think this just shows the severity of the condition of this tree. At this point, this tree had appeared to be, at one point, this tree had appeared to be uh, full and vibrant, but now it was completely shriveled, completely dehydrated, and under God's curse. Second observation, when Jesus curses something, he means it. This is not a flippant act that was performed out of anger. God is so serious about his people producing fruit. He is so serious that he would even so go as far to curse them if they're not. 1 Corinthians 16.22 says, If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. This people had no love for the Lord and were heaping up condemnation for themselves They had no fruit of love in their lives and were in fact producing bad fruit. This is explicitly manifested in the way they even operated the temple. It is no coincidence that between the cursing of the fig tree that we just read and our lesson on the lesson of the fig tree that we got another story sandwiched in between the cleansing of the temple. Verse 15 And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive it out. Those who sold and and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats 
of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. This people was a people of unbelief. This people, they were thieves. They were liars. They were robbers, as Jesus explains here. They had prostituted God's temple for their own gain. They lied and manipulated others to only benefit themselves. And now because of that, they're under God's curse. Zechariah 5, 3-4 says, Then he said to me, This is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. For everyone who steals shall be cleaned out. I will send it out, declares the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter the house of the thief. God wants nothing to do with thieves that steal. And isn't it exactly, isn't this just how it was exactly happening in the time of Jesus? Jesus goes so as far to call this place a den of robbers. So this broke Jesus' heart uh, to see this people, his people, blinded toward their sin. In Luke's account of the triumphal entry, we see that Jesus wept as he came came into Jerusalem, saying, Would that you, even you, had known that this day that things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Their faith was obsolete. Their unbelief was rampant. Their hate for God was evident. Israel's faithless generation needed to repent and turn to God. They had forsaken the God of their fathers and exchanged it for the God of money. And so their faith was desolate. Their their worship was empty. Israel as a whole had apostatized and was given to false worship They loved the praise of men over the praise of God. They were blind and ignorant towards him because they didn't know him. They had no faith. Israel was God's unbelieving nation. Israel was under God's curse. Our story continues in verse 22. If I could find it. (laughs) And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Notice how Jesus responds to Peter and the disciples. They'd seen countless miracles at this point, yet they still had not, or they, yet they were still taken back by Jesus' ability to kill a fig tree. Days earlier, they had seen Christ raise Lazarus from the dead. Why were they so astonished at this point that somehow Christ can now kill a fig tree? According to Matthew's gospel in 2120, they asked, how did this fig tree immediately wither away? They, they had seen thousands of, thousands of miracles at this point, and yet, we get the idea that they were profoundly impacted by this one. They asked, how could this happen? How could this happen? How could something like this happen? And Jesus instructs his men, 
have faith in God. Men, have faith in God. This, this kind of power, it comes from God and God alone. We also get the sense that Jesus is contrasting even the unbelief of Israel. So in essence, he's saying, not you, disciples. Not you, too. You are to be different. Don't imitate the, these faithless people that are surrounding you. You are to be set apart. You are to be distinct. You are to have faith. You are to have faith that moves mountains. You are to be totally different. Do not be contaminated by what this world says. Do not be contaminated by the way you believe God. Don't let the world affect how you view him. Jesus gives such a gentle rebuke here that should honestly just slap every one of us in the face. We are to have faith in God. Does your faith really contrast that of the world? Or are you just faking it? Do you really believe God? Looking back at our passage in verse 23, we're also instructed not to doubt. And the question comes is, how can we get to a point of not doubting? This sounds absolutely impossible. Well, Scripture points to a few ways in how we're to increase our faith, and these are by no means exhaustive. But if you see on your handout, I put down, um, you need to understand your own inadequacy. You need to understand God's character. You need to understand God's will. So let's go ahead and tackle each one of these points. You need to understand your own inadequacy. In Mark 9, a man brought his demon-possessed son to, to Jesus' disciples, and they labored to cast it out. But they could do nothing. So eventually, this man, he brings his own son to Christ because Christ could do something. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening? How long has your son been demon-possessed? And he said, from childhood. It has often cast him into the fire and tried to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately the, the child or immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. This man had faith, but it was filled with doubt. He needed to ask for help. He understood how weak he was. And so what a request. I believe, but help my unbelief. The Christian life isn't one about getting stronger, but it's about realizing how weak you really are. It's about realizing that apart from God, you can do nothing. You need to realize your feebleness and the futility of your strength. In Matthew's account of this same story about casting the demon out of the sun, we catch a different angle. This time it's from the perspective of the disciples. After Jesus cast out the demon, his, his disciples approached him and asked, Jesus, why couldn't we cast it out? In essence, they're asking, like, Christ, we, 
we tried. Like, we used every trick in the book, but this, this demon, it didn't come out. Do you remember how Christ responded? Because of your little faith. Because of your little faith. You often hear TV preachers saying, you better not doubt your words. You better not doubt your faith. I've got something else to inform you of. You had better doubt your faith. Now, take that with a grain of salt. But because the power rests in God, it's not in your faith. It's not of you. It's of God and God alone. You need to trust God. So do you realize your inadequacy yet? Do you realize that apart from God, you can do nothing? Do you realize that even faith, the fact that we say we have faith, shows our weakness? It shows that we really aren't strong enough. It shows that we can't do this thing on our own. If we could, we wouldn't need faith. And I've got a quick question for you. What do you think would even help you believe more? Can I just say, it's not a one and done deal. <laughs> Meaning, there's not going to just be that one moment. It's like, man, I, it hit me and now I just believe completely and totally. Rather, it's an ongoing process. It's one that needs to be continually refined and one that you need to cry out to God for. And just to take care of one of the elephants in the room that I know some people may be thinking of, which is miracles. People often think that by seeing or experiencing them, that they'll have so much more faith in God and want to live so much more radically for him. But the opposite couldn't be more true. The truth is, this truth is often even reaffirmed throughout Scripture. The Israelites, when they had seen the parting of the Red Sea, and they walked through it as on dry land, what eventually ended up happening to them? They were wandering in the desert for 40 years because of their unbelief. This nation had seen miracle upon miracle. But that didn't cause them to believe. They didn't have any more faith because of that. Or do you remember the story of Gideon? What, did, what happened with Gideon? Gideon receives a, a vision from the Lord saying, Gideon, go defeat the Midianites. And this is pretty strict and straightforward. And Gideon knew what he heard, but what does Gideon then proceed to do? He says, God, I've got this fleece and I'm going to put it down on the threshing room floor and uh, I want you to put dew on it, but make the rest of the ground dry. So Jesus, or Jesus, uh, Gideon goes to sleep, wakes up, and there's dew explicitly or just on that one, uh, on that fleece. Enough to where he could even wring it out and it would cover the ground. And then Gideon's like, I don't, I don't know if that's enough. Uh, God, I, I just need one more sign. I just need one more thing that I would come to believe a little bit more. And so what's he do? He puts the fleece out and he's like, God, this time I kind of want you to do something similar, but make the ground wet, but not the fleece. And, uh, you know, God is gracious. He ended up granting Gideon's prayer and but that's not the moral of the story. When Gideon asked if he could have another sign, it really often actually proved his lack of faith. 
Gideon didn't actually believe God the first time he heard. He said he had to have more signs. It wasn't noble of him to ask God to do this. It wasn't intellectual or spiritual of testing God. God had to tell him three times. That's two more times than should be necessary. And how much more for us as Christians when we have God's word, God's word, he tells us once and we should believe it. We don't need more miracles. We don't need further revelation. God has spoken through his word. Let's obey it. If you're in this boat, maybe the fact that you need a sign to not doubt God, in fact, in fact shows that your faith is wavering. It shows your unbelief. Be careful. You're on a slippery slope. When those miracles don't come true, your faith is going to slide. You're begin, gonna be going to begin to doubt. You're going to begin to doubt. And so bringing this full circle, what's causing you to doubt? You don't need to see something new from God. You don't need to see some miracle. You don't need to, you, what you need to believe is God's word. Do you understand your inadequacy? Do you understand that you cannot be a Christian on your own strength? Cry out to God. Ask him to increase your faith. It's an okay thing. It's a humble thing. It's a good thing. Cry out to God to increase your faith. Our second point for not doubting is understanding God's character. Do you understand the goodness of God? Do you understand the sovereignty of God? Do you understand the love of God? Without these qualities, I'll just be honest, God wouldn't be trustworthy. He would be cold towards your prayers if he wasn't loving and unconcerned towards your life. And if he wasn't sovereign, even if he was concerned, he couldn't do a thing about it. But God is good. God is sovereign. God is loving. Child of God, I want you to listen to Psalm 34 where the psalmist recounts the goodness of our God and how he listens to our prayers. Psalm 34, starting in verse 15. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears hear their cry. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. God loves you and he is near to you in every circumstance. He hears you when you call and he wants you to cast your cares upon him. If you've lost a loved one, he's there. If tragedy has begotten you, he's still listening. And even if your prayers aren't answered, he doesn't answer them because he's good. Let me say that again. Even if he doesn't answer your prayers, he doesn't because he's good. You might be asking, how can I not doubt God if he doesn't answer my prayers? How can I not doubt God? Well, maybe the best thing for you, because God is good, is to not answer your prayers. God is good and God has the best intentions for all of us. 
But the best thing for you is often to not answer your prayers. A great example of this is uh, of, uh, of, of someone trusting in God even though he might not answer their prayers is uh, the example of Abraham. And the example I'm looking at is in Hebrews 11. 11 and uh, it says in verse 17, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son. That's faith. Of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered God was even able to raise him from the dead. That's faith. Abraham was ready to plunge the knife into his own son's chest because he trusted God. Because according to Hebrews 11, he considered God was even able to raise this, his son from the dead because God is good. God is faithful. God is loving. Abraham trusted God regardless of the circumstance because he knew that he would use it for his good. He knew that he would eventually work it out for his good. This just screams to the world that we don't doubt God. In the midst of calamity, when you say, yes, God is good. God is good. If my wife were to go headlong in a car crash and I I say, God is good, does that show I'm doubting God or trusting him? I trust God. He has brought me safe thus far. And I trust him even now in the midst of hardest of times. I don't doubt God. I don't doubt God now. And that's the character of our God. He's so good. He is so sovereign. And he is so loving towards his children. And this ties pretty close with our next point, which is God's revealed will. There are periods when I don't necessarily know if God is going to answer my prayers. And so I want to know, how can I be confident to know that God actually will answer my prayers? Well, simple answer. Because he said he will. And this is revealed right explicitly in his word. So let's uh, go on with our story in uh, verse 24. Uh, verse 24 of Matthew 11. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. That's a pretty bold statement there, isn't it? I mean, to say it will be yours, it almost kind of makes me feel uncomfortable. <laughs> It kind of sounds like those televangelists, kind of like uh, name it, claim it, blab it, grab it. And uh, you're probably saying the same thing right now. You're probably thinking, Anthony, like that just sounds a little bit on the edge. And uh, I'd say you're right. (laughs) Because what we even see in uh, in a verse like James 4, or James 4, 3, it says, It says, uh, you ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. To spend it on your own passions. To spend it on your own passions. Here's the rub. If we ask according to the flesh and our own selfish desires, 
we probably won't get whatever it is we're asking for. We need to ask according to God's will and God's purposes. God is looking for people to pray according to his will and not their own. We see this played out even in the Lord's Prayer. How does it go? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God is looking for people who will pray according to his will. And that's the kind of faith that moves mountains. 1 John 5.14 says, and this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. He hears us. God hears our prayers and wants to grant our prayers when we pray according to his will. And so my question is, is, and what you should all be asking as well is, man, if God can hear my prayers and when I pray according to his will, what's God's will? I want to know what God's will is. What an exciting thing that God will even hear and grant our prayers. Well, Christ gives a much better explanation than I ever could. So um, let's turn over to the upper room discourse, which is found in John 14, or actually 13 through 16. And uh, I'm just going to be hopping all over in here. So feel free to, or try to keep up. So John 14, 12 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he that believes in me, the works that I do, he will also do, or he will also, he will do also in greater works because I go to the Father. Jumping down to 14, says, uh, Whatever you ask in my name, that will I, that will I do. Oh, yeah, that will I do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. So that doesn't necessarily mean that if you just slap in Jesus' name, at the end of any prayer that God's automatically going to grant it. But what does the, when we say in Jesus' name, what does that actually mean? What does that represent? It's not necessarily the words, but it represents, it's consistent with who Jesus is. When you come to someone, you're saying, yeah, I'm coming to you in the name of this person. You're representing that person. So it's not, his, so it's not the words. It's consistent with who he is. His name is who he is. It's consistent with his will and his divine purposes. So pray in, in the name of Christ. Pray according to the will of Christ. In that same upper room, there's much instruction. Uh, in, ver- in chapter 15, verse 7, we see, oh, I'm in Romans. Oh, whatever. Uh, in chapter 15, verse 7, we see, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Ask whatever you wish. What a profound statement. We can ask whatever we want. But there's a catch. If my words abide in you. And if you abide in me. Question for you. Who's controlling this wish list? He is. God is controlling this wish list. Then hopping down to uh, 
John 15, chapter 16, or chapter 16, John 15, uh, verse 16. You didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. Your fruit would, me, rem, would remain so that whatever you ask of, of my Father in my name, he will give it to you. And then hopping down to chapter 16, verse 23, that same upper room on that Thursday night, in that day, you will not question me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be made full. And how does Paul exhort us Exhort us in uh, chapter uh, 12 of Romans? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of the mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. For those of you that have studied that beginning portion of Romans 12, you understand that, that the renewal of the mind, what is it? It's letting God's word saturate your mind. It's just like Colossians 3. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Renew your mind. And so what is the purpose at the end? So that you may know the will of God. The word of God instructs us how we even relate with God. He makes known his purposes through his word so that we can pray right along with them and know that God hears and answers our prayers. God explicitly makes known his will through his word, even in the case of like 1 Thessalonians 4. This is the will of God. How's that go? Your sanctification. You want to know the will of God for your life and the will of God in your prayers? Your sanctification. That you would be more holy. And so we don't need to doubt God. We don't need to doubt God when we pray according to his will. These things are radical and otherworldly. This is not how the world is praying. Having faith like this is not like the, like the world has. These kinds of prayers and this kind of faith is distinctly Christian. These kind of prayers and this kind of faith aligns with God and his purpose. If you were to go to a typical evangelical prayer service, you probably won't hear people pray like this. You probably won't hear people have faith like this. This literally only comes from the word of God. And much of what we consider evangelical today is watered down. And it's not based on the word or the will of God. But we want to pray according to his will. We want to pray according to his word. So during these prayer services, you might, sure, you might hear a lot of long and impressive prayers, but you'll never hear people crying out for God to increase their faith. Sure, you might hear for health issues and uh, things that may or may not be granted, but seldom you'll, never, you'll ever hear for God to, or for these people to have their faith increased by God. Or even for praising God for being good in the midst of calamity. Hardly anyone will praise Christ for making uh, themselves more like him. 
and even fewer will pray according to his word and according to his will. So, you want to have faith that moves mountains? I'm sure most of you do. Ask God for it. Ask God to increase your faith. Understand his goodness. Understand his will. God loves you and he has the best intentions for you. Don't let the world persuade you otherwise. God can do seemingly impossible things through your life if you let him. So align yourself with this will. He'll toss these supposed mountains, these things that look impossible, to the side as if they're pebbles. So trust in God. Trust in the promise of his word. So in closing, would you guys mind bowing with me, even on your knees and turning around, and that we just might even put some of these things into practice where we would uh, cry out to God just to increase our faith Oh, Heavenly Father, God, we are so inadequate. God, we are so inadequate for the task that you have, had, have, that you have set before us. And Lord, we just want to pray as the man prayed for his son and with, with Christ. God, help our unbelief. We are so prone to doubt. We are so prone to doubt you. God, and God, even if we had faith like a mustard seed, God, you say, Lord, we could toss a, toss a mulberry bush to the side. So, Lord, increase our faith. Lord, we just want, we want to see your kingdom come, your will be done through our lives. God, you're the one that directs us. You're the one that counsels us and guides us into mature faith. So Lord, accomplish your purposes through our life. God, I do want to pray for anyone that might not know Christ and God, that doesn't have faith even in this moment. God, they can't, they can't associate you with, associate to you as loving, good, or sovereign, God, because in that instance, God, you're just. You're wrathful. So Lord, I pray, God, that you would Draw those who might not know you to yourself. God, that they can know you as loving and good. And yeah, God, we just, we pray these things through the matchless name of Jesus Christ who bought us with his precious blood. Amen.